0: Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the -the off-the-wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I am Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you on this Monday morning. Hope that everyone is doing well out there. Uh, If I sound like a a little bit uh, more sexy than I normally do, it's because I have a bit of a cold. Uh, I think it's got to do with this whole pollen situation going on. I need them to do that like whole pollen map that they used to do back in the day. Remember, they would say, it's going to rain, it's going to be hot. Hot air and cold air, and then there's going to be pollens. I, I, I don't do that pollen map anymore. I think the sponsor must have pulled out or something. But I need that pollen map because I think I'm suffering. I don't know if you've been suffering. Let us know because I think a few people in the community have. However, I'm happy to say that we nobody is going to be suffering uh, today in terms of our radio show because we've got some hell of interesting stuff to talk about. One of the things I do wanted to say uh, just before we properly get going is that there's a great new initiative happening with the South African Friends of Israel as many of you will be aware uh, UCT is looking at this issue of boycotting Israeli universities uh and it's, I mean it's just absurd really but uh, the SA Friends of Israel guys have come up with this great new suggestion idea where they're going to be sending uh students from UCT uh, to Israel, uh, science students, people between honours and masters, and they'll be able to spend three months in the Weizmann University uh, Institute, which is one of the top uh, science universities in the in the country in Israel. And so, this will really give uh, young people in South Africa a top class exposure to Israeli science, which they will then bring back here to South Africa and hopefully also talk about what the country is really about at the same time as showing that uh, this whole boycott thing at UCT is just nonsense. Now, I know they need some support for it. I know they've already got about 50 grand, but they they need to get um, uh, 200,000 rand uh, into the bank, and it's being matched actually by Weizmann Institute. So 50% of everything that they raise is actually going in. Uh, so I just think it's a great initiative, something positive. So if it's something that you want to do to support uh, this thing, to, to break this boycott attempt uh, by radical elements at UCT, I think you should support it. So go check out the SAFI website, South African Friends of Israel, uh, and check out the campaigns, uh, and you should be able to donate there. Uh, I think every bit helps, really, to help get our people uh, to Israel, improve the science in South Africa, and deal with all the problems. Now – what I would also want to tell you is after the break, we are going to be having our uh, almost regular uh, commentator on politics and current affairs. She flies in all the way from America just to be with us uh, on a regular basis. Uh, her name is Yaffa Frederick, and uh, we're going to be checking out what is going on with Trump, what is going on with uh, the Iranians, all of this stuff. It's a, a crazy, crazy thing out there. So uh, we're going to be getting right into that. When we come back, but first, let's go check out what's going on in the marketplace. And when we get back, we'll be speaking to Jaffa Frederick. is the New Blue Review with Benji Schulman. You're back with 101.9. Hi, FMA, I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. And as promised, we have social and political commentator Yaffa Frederick in studio talking about all things that are going on in the world. Now, what I actually realized in doing my extensive preparation for this show uh, is that when we first had Yaffa Frederick on the show, uh, we actually looked a lot into the what was then shaping up to be the American elections. And we were actually looking right at the beginning uh, at the Republican race and who was going to win and who was this guy called Trump that was getting involved. And um, I distinctly remember her saying, look, it's early on in the polls. Trump is never going to go anywhere. Don't worry about it. Um, but it's fine. All of us thought that. Uh, she's not happy with me. Anyway, uh, some people need reminders. Anyway, the point is, I think it's fantastic that... We can keep having this discussion because we now basically are at a similar point four years down the line with the Democratic candidates in America, and uh, it's a different country. It's a different political context, and uh, I think we're going to start there and start getting in and understanding who might be the next next president of the United States of America because you really wanted to hear it here first. By the way, if you want to ask any questions, uh, particularly about the Republican Party, say, or the Democrats. Um, we had a famous question on the show at one point, uh, that you, all sorts of things. So yeah, we always had great, great questions on this segment. So I love it. Um, you can telegram us on 061 895 1019, or you can SMS us on 34519, tweet us at gifm, or email us on air at gifm.com. You can ask Jaffer Frederick anything you would like to ask her about, uh, about what is going on in the American elections. Yaffa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us on Hi FM.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show again. So I think people might be following what's going on with the Dems, might not be following what's going on with them. So what is actually, where are we in the race? And like, who do we have on the agenda so far?
1: So we are in the midst of the primary season, though it's a little bit misleading to say that because the actual primaries don't start uh, until February of 2020. What's a primary? So in order to choose our top candidate for both the Democratic and Republican Party, we go through a primary season where each state casts ballots. Um, and it varies state to state as to the process and how they do that. But ultimately, the one... in who gets the most votes, uh, becomes the nominee for the party and goes head to head in the general election, which will be November 2020. So the big question is, who's going to be taking on Donald Trump in 2020? He has a couple of primary challengers himself. It's very, very likely that he will have the Republican nomination. So the big question is on the Democratic side. Um, And we are, I would say, probably more likely uh, in the debate season than the primary season. So uh, monthly, we are having debates with the lead Democratic candidates. There are about 20 who are currently in the race. Uh, but there are 10 who are qualifying for the debate stage, which means that they're polling the highest at this point in the race.
0: There's some fascinating characters who have come out of the Democratic can we call it a swamp? I don't think that's very good. Uh,
1: Not if some of them are anti-establishment. No,
0: no, yeah, they're trying to also drain. Dr- they're trying to drain the drain swamp, the orange swamp, maybe. Um, so I want to start with some of them that you definitely haven't heard of, because there is some crazy. Uh, there's one woman I see, notably one of the Jewish candidates. I know one of who, two. One of two. So there are two Jews who are running uh, in in the Democratic Party and she wants to set up a ministry of love.
1: Well. I, I should say I probably planted that idea in her head more than it was her genuine <laughs> idea, uh, but her name is Marianne Williamson and she's pretty famous in the United States for being a motivational speaker and spiritual healer. She got famous in the late 80s, early 90s, wrote a bunch of bestsellers that uh, Housewives Across America ate up. Um, she doesn't have a lot of political experience, but she does speak in a way that kind of captures your attention whether you agree or disagree. Um, so one of her more famous comments at the second debate uh, was on the issue of reparations in America. So one of the big conversations which maybe South Africans will relate to is that many African Americans feel they are due uh, money for years of slavery and legalized slavery. And this is a hot issue within the Democratic Party. Um, And so during this debate, she said that it was. I think the figure she used was like $500 billion should be given to the African-American population in the United States. And we're talking about millions of people here. Um, and when someone asked her how she had arrived at that calculation, she shouted, 40 acres and a mule. Because <laughs> at the end of the Civil War, the thought process in terms of what do you pay former slaves was 40 acres and a mule. And if you multiply that uh, and adjust for inflation in modern times, you arrive apparently at this figure of $500 billion. Um, but she also... was someone who in that same debate talked about the dark psychic forces that had encompassed America in the days of Trump and how we had to cast them aside uh, and replace them with love. So she's quite a
0: character. Yeah, it sounds like she is. Uh, you're listening to 101.9 High FM. Uh, we have Yaffa Frederick in the studio. She is a social and political commentator, and she's giving us some insight into what we can expect, particularly on the democratic side of the American elections, which is coming up to a cinema near you at 2020. So uh, that's early next year. It's going to be or late next year. Actually. November, November. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. We're going to take a short break uh, and then we'll be back just after this. This is the new blue review with Benji Shulman. You're back with one Hi 1.9 FM. I'm Benji Shulman. And this is the new blue review. And, uh, we are talking today about uh, the American elections and uh, what's going to be happening on the Democratic ticket. And right on uh, schedule, we have my next question, which actually doesn't come from me. It comes from Gimple the Fool. Gimple, thank you so much for sending this in. Uh, he asks, please ask about Bernie Sanders' endorsement from Linda sir, and how this will influence American Jews. Now, it was interesting because we mentioned Maryam Williams, who you said is one of the two Jewish candidates. Yes, that one. Um, one of the two Jewish candidates. And the other one, of course, is everybody's favorite grandpa, Bernie Sanders, notably the first Jew ever to win a major primary in a major political party in America. Um, But he's not every Jew's favorite, even though he is a Jewish candidate. What is going on with Big Bernie?
1: So Bernie is a self-avowed democratic socialist, um, which isn't exactly the same thing as a socialist, but it definitely has some of those tendencies. He believes in healthcare for all. He believes in free university, those sorts of things. He also speaks every year uh, at the annual Muslim American Convention, which has earned him accolades from folks like Linda Sarsour. Uh, in terms of how this helps or hurts Bernie, I actually don't think it makes as much of a difference as people think it does. Um, the Muslim American population is not... They are significant, but not as significant in the polls as you may think. They don't sway elections. They aren't the 70,000 votes that decided the 2016 election. So yes, it probably means that in the primaries, he'll secure more Muslim votes, particularly in states like Michigan. Michigan has one of the largest, uh, Muslim populations in the country. So endorsements from folks like Linda Sarsour or let's say Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, all of whom seem to be fairly supportive of Bernie at this point in time, will help him get Muslim votes. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to get him the nomination. And It's certainly not going to get him the presidency. Um, and in terms, you know, of how it affects the Jews, it's one of those things where he, Bernie is a very left wing Jew. He's either your cup of tea or he's not. Um, and he and Mary Williamson are the only two Jews uh, running, I believe, right now from the Democrats. So, you know, it depends on what motivates you to vote. Is it the religious identity of someone um, or is it their actual political beliefs? I would argue that, you know, most American Jews, I think the latest stats from Pew are somewhere between 71 and 72 percent of Americans. Uh, Jews identify as Democrats, right? So most American Jews are still voting for the Democratic Party. The question is, which of the many candidates are they supporting? I would expect that Bernie is not at the top of the list for most American Jews, uh, but he is at the top of the list for many American Muslims.
0: That's very interesting, uh, because Bernie is also at the top of the list of the current list of Democrats who are um, running for the presidency. Who else is kind of up there? Who are the top four that are running?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that Bernie is probably in the number two or three slot. The number one is Joe Biden, who everyone remembers as Obama's vice president for eight years. He's considered moderate. He's considered to appeal to those voters in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin who did decide the 2016 election. Um, and then he's followed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren being a senator from Massachusetts, Sanders from Vermont. Uh, they are considered the progressives on the party who are pushing some of the most left wing uh, agenda, both domestically and internationally as well. Um, and then they're followed by Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. Kamala Harris is a fairly, I would say, somewhere between a moderate and a progressive senator from California. She's half black and half Indian, so she checks many diversity boxes, um, interestingly enough. And then Pete Buttigieg, who's the mayor of a tiny, tiny town, I think, called South Bend, Indiana, uh, and is a leading gay candidate um, on the ticket.
0: OK, so there's all sorts of interesting dynamics going on in the Democratic Party. There does seem to have been, almost as a reaction to Trump, a swing left in the politics of the party. Uh, How is that affecting the voters? Because the majority of Democratic voters are still kind of centrist moderates. Uh, so how do, how are they, what, what are they making of this candidate surge of the more progressives?
1: So this is the challenge in the American political system because we go through both primaries and general election. And in the primaries, the people who come out to vote are often the most enthusiastic um, and more extreme politically. So this actually can often favor progressives because you have people who are kind of diehards. Um, but in the general election where you have to compete with Republican voters and independent voters also taking into account, uh, there's this push to have a more moderate candidate who can appeal. And so this is a push and pull within the Democratic Party now. It's why you have someone like Joe Biden as the moderate who's consistently been in the number 1 slot since he declared but he's closely followed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and depending on the states because when i say this like every single state all 50 states are going to be voting individually on the, on these candidates um, is a different ball game right so the first one that everyone knows is the iowa caucus and iowa is a very white homogenous looking state it's also a state that favors Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Biden's team even said last week, we're already thinking about the state after Iowa. They don't really expect that they're going to win at this point in time. Uh, but then you take a state like South Carolina, where 60 percent of the primary voters are African-American. That does not favor Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or even Pete Buttigieg, who have not polled well with African-American voters. So you kind of have to take it state by state. But the key is keeping in mind Who are you putting on that stage uh, against Trump in the general election? Because they're going to have to appeal to far more uh, individuals than just progressives.
0: Well, that's uh, very much, I think, the part of the problem that the Democrats have. You know, uh, Obama, whether you like him or not, was able to pull in all the different types of people that vote for Democrat, whereas Hillary wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably the question that people are asking themselves is not so much in the primaries, but who, if you're gonna be up against Donald Trump, can you have that uniting force? to try and get him out the office if you're a Democrat.
1: Right. right. And, I mean, that—that that is the million-dollar question. And in every single poll that CNN does, that ABC, that the New York Times does, consistently the number one thing Democrats say that they care the most about is Donald Trump losing in 2020. Um, so the hope is, if that's really their intent, whoever the nominee becomes, the entire party needs to coalesce around and campaign for. Uh, one of the big criticisms of Bernie back in 2016 is that when he lost, the Democratic nomination, he wasn't as forceful about getting the Bernie bros that people may have heard about, the diehard Bernie supporters, to actually vote for Hillary. And that if he had done a better job at that, we may have, you know, the Democrats may have won 2016 with 70,000 votes that they needed.
0: So he can blame Bernie Sanders for the rise of Trump.
1: I mean, Bernie takes great offense at that and says he did everything in his power. To be fair, he does say that he did that. Uh, But there is a sense that he didn't do enough. I mean, Clinton perhaps didn't do enough either by not campaigning in several of these key states. There were there were mistakes and blame all around. Uh, but in terms of learning from their mistakes, you know, the Democrats, for example, are hosting the Democratic National Convention where they announced the nominee in Wisconsin, one of the states they lost in 2016. They're, they are taking steps to learn from the past.
0: We're speaking today to Yaffa Frederick. She is a social and political commentator. Uh, and if you want to ask any other questions, you can telegram us at 0618951019 uh, or SMS us 34519. How unusual is it to uh, lose a presidential candidacy sort of in the middle of the term? Because American presidents have two terms. Um,
1: if they win the second term.
0: If they win the second term. So that's the question I have is... How often does that happen?
1: Um not that often, but it has happened in recent history. So George H.W. Bush, George W.'s dad, um after the first Gulf War lost the election in 92. He had campaigned promising no new taxes and it was famous for raising taxes. And that came back to bite him in the polls. He was also going up against a dashing young uh, governor of Arkansas named Bill Clinton at the time, um, who I don't think he fully anticipated. And Bill Clinton, by the way, was very, very moderate. So he had broad appeal to the electorate. So you had that with George H.W. Bush. A few years prior, you had that with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a Democrat, George H.W. Bush, a Republican. With Jimmy Carter's case, you had the Iran hostage crisis, right? You had Americans who'd been in hostage for days if not really years at this point he had failed to get them out and in addition, uh, the U.S. was going through hyperinflation, so gas was incredibly expensive. The, the cost of living was incredibly expensive. And so there was this push for Ronald Reagan, a Republican, to come kind of change up that whole system. So it does happen. But that said, Obama served two terms, George W. Bush served two terms, and Bill Clinton served two terms.
0: Okay, so it could be quite an interesting scenario. Uh, Ronnie Hershewitz sending in a telegram here, Ronnie, saying, thank God the Dems lost. May it continue. Well, uh, Ronnie, you're certainly not hiding your political affiliation. Thank you very much. If you want to let us know um, if you are a big Orange Man fan or if you're looking for the Democrats to win, let us know. Oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine or 34519. That's the SMS number. I'd like to know which way high FM listeners are swinging when it comes to the American election. Could we be the 60,000 votes that the Democrats need to swing the election? That is a a serious question. Now, you mentioned Carter and foreign policy. That's quite interesting because, uh, you know, foreign policy gets some play in, in these debates and it, it's sort of important for America because it's big and does things, although I don't know how At important. At
1: time we were considered the global leader. <laughs> I'm not so sure that most world leaders in 2019 would contend that we are in well, the same I mean, way. I mean,
0: I think it depends which world leader you're talking to. Uh, but the point is, is that I'm interested in how foreign policy plays in these debates. And and how are democratic candidates addressing that issue in in some of their platforms?
1: It's a good question. So the first thing I'll say on this is foreign policy does not drive electoral outcomes. When Americans go to the polls, they are not thinking about Afghanistan. They are not thinking about Syria. And frankly, with the exception of American Jews and some evangelicals, they're not thinking about Israel either. They are thinking about domestic issues. They are thinking about the fact that they cannot afford to pay for university tuition. They're thinking about the fact that they have medical bills that they also similarly cannot afford to pay. So what drives U.S. politics is really domestic issues. With the exception of, you know, the post 9-11 era, uh, where obviously foreign policy came into the, f- the forefront. Now, how does it play out in debates? Well, inevitably, there is a question that comes up about Afghanistan. We have been there now for 18 years. We have yet to fully succeed. We just had a negotiation with the Taliban completely break down. So there isn't an end in sight. Um, the, the funny thing about this is Democrats and Republicans used to be very different on foreign policy. And now I actually compare them to uh, the labor labor and Tories in the UK, where it's not always easy to tell based on the responses what party they belong to. So what do I mean? When Trump uh, was campaigning, his whole thing was we are getting out of Afghanistan. We are getting out of Iraq. We are getting out of Syria. And he made some initial moves and then he backed away from it. He gave this very famous speech about why we were all going to stay in Afghanistan and how he consulted with his national security advisors. And there were more details that had come to light and we couldn't just leave. Now he wants to get out again, but he also can't get a deal with the Taliban or the current Afghan government. Elizabeth Warren, on the other side, says almost the same thing as Trump did on the campaign trail. She wants out of Afghanistan. She does not want America fighting wars that it cannot win. Um, and that costs trillions of dollars. So like Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren start to sound very similar on Afghanistan. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump sound. start to sound very similar in Afghanistan, where you see more of the nuance and perhaps is of interest to the listeners is on the issue of Israel. Um, there are whereas the Republicans present a much more united front on Israel and are supportive of, frankly, whoever is leading the Israeli government, be it Netanyahu or whoever may win this week. Uh, Democrats are much more nuanced and much more can be much more critical. So you have folks like Joe Biden who are of the moderate wing, uh, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, who um, are much more in the way that we might define pro-Israel. Um, And then you have folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who will say that they support the existence of the state of Israel, but they're critical of Bibi Netanyahu, who they believe is facing multiple counts of criminality and should be held accountable and are critical of the lack of perhaps term limits that exist in the the Israeli system now.
0: I mean, how much of a factor is that um, in terms of what might happen in the uh, Israeli-American relationship? You know, Bibi for all of whatever issues you might have with him he 's played the connection to Donald Trump better than any international leader mm-hmm. in the world, except for maybe Kim Jong un um,
1: and Shinzo Abe in Japan, I would argue yeah,
0: maybe Shinzo as well uh, but but really, Bibi has done an excellent job in in sort of aligning you know mm-hmm. foreign policy with trump so if bibi isn 't in the new administration in three months, what do you think that effect might be because Donald Trump is to put it mildly difficult to tell what he might do on foreign policy.
1: Yeah, uh he is. Um perhaps it's his lack of foreign policy experience that contributes to that reality. Um but I would say that Benny Gantz if if let's say it's Benny Gantz, um, Benny Gantz is an ex-military guy. I mean this this idea that he's going to be super lefty is completely out of line and wrong. Um, and and the reality is, what motivates Donald Trump is his base. He wants to please his base, and he wants to fulfill every promise he's made to his base. And his base is strongly evangelical. They are strongly support supportive of the state of Israel, uh, and they don't necessarily distinguish between who the prime minister is. So, so long as the base is pro-Israel, I think we can expect Trump to continue to make strides, uh, to be besties, frankly, with whoever is running the country, whoever he has to deal with.
0: And yet, at the same time, we have this kind of weird dynamic where Trump is kind of very pro-Israel and up to this point has also gone along in some ways with a a sort of more pro-Israel regional agenda. Uh, you know, there's this big peace initiative that he wanted to have, which the Palestinians were not happy about. He was pulled out of the Iran deal. But now he's doing a very classic Trumpian move where he was talking about meeting Iran, He just fired John Bolton, who was seen as the architect of this policy. So like what is going on with his regional perspective?
1: <laughs> Another million dollar question. Um Trump likes to meet with rogue leaders and to say that he made new deals and did what previous leaders couldn't do. So the possibility of meeting with the Iranians and negotiating a new deal is very appealing. And you have to remember this is the guy who wrote the art of the deal. He likes to see himself as the deal maker. Some unfortunate news for him this morning uh, is that the Iranians don't see it quite the same way and they have said that they will not be meeting with of President Trump at the U.N. General Assembly, which kicks off next week in New York. So that may be a little bit disappointing. Um, but it also may have to do with the fact that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has accused Iran of the latest strikes on Saudi oil fields this weekend. So tensions continue to play high. Um, so I think the answer is that, it's, that Trump's policy, and I hate to call it nuance, because I think that that almost gives it a little bit more credit than it deserves. But he is someone who likes to meet meet with road leaders, do his own deals, but also has a strong evangelical base that he has to keep happy. So that means a pro-Israel agenda, but it also means that he's going to kind of be pushing the limit of uh, some of the traditional U.S. establishment policies.
0: Um, okay, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, for Frederick. Sorry, we're just. I'm just looking at some of the SMSs that we've got coming in here. Um, I just apologize, the system is not working. It's fine, I'm gonna read it over here. Uh, Ronnie Hershevitz weighing in on, um, on his view on, uh, the Israeli election, saying Gantz was a very incompetent chief of staff, and his wife supports an organization, uh, that bullies soldiers posted at the borders. Okay, so, uh, Ronnie, we now know where you stand on both American and Israeli politics. Thank you for that. Uh, Gimple also coming in. Uh, saying, would a democratic winner at the next elections reverse the decision to keep the, the U.S. embassy open? And, uh, you're asking about Ilhan Omar as well. I'm not sure about that because we answered the Linda Sasua one earlier. So just give me a sense about uh, what you're looking for, uh, when it comes to, uh, Ilhan Omar. And, uh, we'll be happy to, uh, happy to answer that for sure. So let's, let's start there. Uh, Yaffa, yeah. the, the, the embassy move. Is a new president able to reverse that?
1: Of course, a uh, new president can can do a lot. Um, I think it's unlikely that that's going to happen anytime soon. This has come up in a bunch of town halls. I know uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, I believe, said that he would not reverse it. Um, I think it's unlikely. It, it is a bureaucratic nightmare to move embassies.
0: And, and surely because it was a congressional resolution, it, it, ha- it has more waste weight than just the executive?
1: American politics today is often run by executive action and not by congressional resolution. Um, but yeah, it, it would be hard. And again, most of Congress, as you rightly point out, still is very pro-Israel. Um, not necessarily that they all supported the move, but they support Israel. And frankly, it's a logistical nightmare to do. Um, also, several other smaller countries have followed suit, particularly Central American countries, in moving their embassies to Jerusalem. So uh, if you want to create more chaos in U.S. foreign policy, you start reversing Things like that. Um, but I, I think it's unlikely. That said, if it was Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, I wouldn't rule it out. I do not think it's going to be the top of their agenda. I think that they are going to have bigger fish to fry, so to speak.
0: Well, there you go. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll speak again to Jaffa Frederick. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. You're listening to 101.9. Hi, FM. I'm Benji Schulman. This is the New Blue Review, and we have political and current affairs expert Jaffa Frederick in studio today answering all questions to do with the American elections, upcoming uh, Democratic primaries, all sorts of things. We're being uh, going deep down into the swamp and seeing what are the monsters that are emerging. If you want to ask any questions, please do 0618951019. Uh, that's on the Telegram. If you want SMS, us 34519. I'd be very, very happy to answer them. Now, I have a uh, question that I have around the economy, right? So famously, Bill Clinton's campaign said, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, and somebody once told me that if you want to win an American election, don't get into any wars and make sure the economy is working. Where is Trump sitting on the economy side of things?
1: So he's in a kind of funky area. I would say so much of his presidency is uncharted territory. And I think we are in a lot of this uncharted territory with the economy. Um, so Trump's big thing was, I'm going to renegotiate all of these trade deals. They're unfair. They don't favor the American worker. We're losing jobs. We're losing money. Uh, and so he's slowly but surely been trying to renegotiate it. It started with NAFTA. So this is with Mexico and Canada. So now he has, I think it's called UMSCA or U. United States, Mexico, Canada like deal. It's it's NAFTA 2.0 that he's trying to negotiate and get through Congress. But the big one, the one that is really uh getting world markets on the edge is the trade war with China. So, you know, to be fair, China steals a lot of our intellectual property per year uh and that has been deeply problematic for America for obvious reasons. However, um, some of the, these tit for tat trade wars also affect the global market. So, you know, take steel, for example, a huge part of American construction most American construction companies will tell you they used to buy their steel from China. Why? Because it's cheaper. So what happens now when it's more expensive? They don't build as much. It's not that they're buying American steel. They're actually saying they're going to build less or that building projects are going to be delayed. I actually just interviewed uh, the head of one major construction company in New York about this. Um, so that's one thing. But then it's like you have farmers in Iowa who can't sell their soybeans because they spent years cultivating markets in China uh, and now the Chinese aren't buying their soybeans and so their soybeans are rot. Notably, these same farmers are actually very supportive of Trump and say that everyone has to take a hit for the greater good. And if ultimately there is a more fair trade deal, it will be worth it. Um, the Chinese have actually, in the last few days, backed off of uh, the imposition of some new tariffs. They're delaying it a little bit um, on some key goods. But this tit for tat trade war is shaking the world markets and you see it. There's a little bit more up and down. Trump actually rode a pretty good wave when he got into office where the market was on the up and up and he could vary. That was his big thing. Like the market's great. Unemployment is less than 4%. I know South Africans would die for an unemployment rate like that. Um, and these are all true. Now there's more instability in the market. We are also coming, you know, what most economists will say is every 8 to 9 years, you have uh, a reset and a recession that often will kick in. So, you know, we are now more than 8 years away from the last recession. So, there's this big fear that we are due for a reset. Um if that happens, if if there is a reset uh in the United States in the next year, Trump is going to have a very tough re-election because the economy has been the number 1 issue he has campaigned on.
0: Now, of course, the other big international economy issue is Brexit, uh, and Big Boris uh, has made a big thing about getting an American-UK trade deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the likelihood of that is? Because Trump has been very supportive of Brexit and very supportive of, of Trump, Boris. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I th- I could see very easily a new U.S.-British uh, trade deal being negotiated. And frankly, the Brits need it more than uh, we do. Um, Boris needs to negotiate many, many trade deals if he wants Brexit to succeed without the British economy completely tanking. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's possible. But again, I don't think it's the number one priority for Trump right now. It may be Boris's priority, but it's not Trump's top priority. So I think the challenge is going to be how do you get to the, the Americans to the table um, at this point in time? I know, and, and of course, Boris is dealing with a bunch of other fires that he has to put out as he tries to make Brexit happen. I think today he's actually meeting with uh, Jean Claude Juncker of the European Commission on this.
0: Gimple, I see, has uh, sent us uh, an SMS. So uh, basically asking whether you do believe that Trump has a shot at the second term.
1: I fully believe he does. Um, as, as you pointed out at the top, Many co- political commentators underestimated Trump, but more importantly, I think we underestimated American voters and their dissatisfaction either with the Obama years or with Clinton as a candidate. Um, I believe, you know, shame on you if you fool me once, but shame on me if you fool me twice. So I believe he very much has a shot. I think the one thing that would get in his way, as I mentioned earlier, is if there is an economic recession because Americans vote based on, as I said, domestic policy. If they can't afford to pay their bills, if they have high unemployment, if there's sa- savings in retirement, is disappearing that is going to motivate them but if the economy kind of continues the way it's been going even with some shakes in the market i think he's well positioned for 2020
0: certainly it's going to be interesting to see uh, if that happens now bringing it back home a little bit uh, we still don't have an american ambassador even though they tried to confirm the bag lady uh ilana mean marx uh i don't know why why is it that that we don't have an ambassador here yet?
1: So ambassadors have to be confirmed uh, by Congress. Now, in the United States, ambassadors can either be political appointees, which means people who usually donated a lot of money to the president's campaign, um, or they're career civil service people. But those are the ones who get stationed in uh, countries that perhaps are less desirable. So they those are not the ones who get the British or Parisian appointments. Um, the issue with Lana Marks for perhaps several senators is that Yes, she is a supporter of Trump. She's actually a member of Mar-a-Lago, his big country club in Florida. Um, But she doesn't have some of the qualifications that you might want, especially when you're coming to South Africa, which as every listener knows, is a very complicated political reality. So, you know, the background on Lana Marks is that she is originally from South Africa. She emigrated to the U.S. in the 1970s, and she started this luxury bag company. And when I say luxury, I mean 100 and to $120,000 per bag. Oh, wow. Um, that's
0: that's over like over a million It's like a house. Yes,
1: exactly. So, you know, she has done very well for herself in the business world. She caters to the wealthiest of wealthy. Uh, But how up is she on South African politics today? I think she left in something like 1976. Um, It's a little bit of a different reality than 1976 today. Um, And the former U.S. ambassador to South Africa was really, really active. Um, And I'm not so sure that members of Congress are convinced that Lana Marx is going to take the same role in what is still viewed as a really critical country on the continent in U.S. foreign policy.
0: So we're going to talk more a little bit about the continent. When we come back, we'll take a short break. And then when we return, we'll be speaking again to diplomatic expert, Jaffa Frederick. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Schulman. What a 1.9. FM, in studio with Jaffa Frederick, who is a political commentator. And if you want to squeeze in a... Uh, couple of questions just before the end of the show. You can telegram us 61 895 or sms us 34519. Now, you did mention, Yaffe, before the break, We were talking about South Africa and the ambassador and the, the troubles that, that the Senate is having, uh basically putting a uh, lot of marks in the embassy. Maybe, in some respects, we will look on President George Bush as being one of the most pro-Africa uh, American presidents, funny enough, if I think about it with the Goa and Petfar and all of mm-hmm. these things, despite some controversy. Yeah. Um, I would s- say that you could sum up Donald Trump's so far his policy towards Africa as saying that they were countries of a certain kind of whole. Um, which I can't say on air.
1: See, I would have said his policies were largely non-existent, but that's that's one way to define it. Well, sure. well that
0: that is the question. That's using
1: his own words. Yeah,
0: that I have. Like, like where where is him and his administration going on Africa? Yeah, uh, it took them up until even a year ago to have an Africa secretary. So, have we answered the question about where Africa sits on the Trump <laughs> Look, agenda?
1: The one thing I'll say is while Donald Trump himself has made no effort to visit the continent, uh, Melania Trump and Ivanka Trump have both visited. Um. Though they have not visited South Africa, um, Ivanka is very committed to investing in female entrepreneurs and encouraging young women to start businesses and grow businesses. Um, I believe her most recent trip, she was in Kenya and possibly Cote d'Ivoire as well. Um, Melania has visited four countries. She visited with a lot of orphanages and kind of did the first lady work that we see when they visit, uh, you know, low-income kids across the globe. Um, but there are members of the Trump family that are visiting the continent. I think. Frankly, Ivanka is probably the one I would give the most props to um, at this point in time. But, yeah, we don't have ambassadors in a lot of African countries. Um, There are, you know, career civil service people who are still here fighting the good fight. And I don't want to diminish the work that they do. It's more than just processing visas. Um, But one of the things that Trump did, and it's very common when new presidents come in, is that they will suspend previous presidential policies. So things like PEPFAR um, or Obama's Electrify Africa are not being funded in the way that they used to be. So... There is a big question as to what are Trump's top priorities in Africa beyond, uh, you know, Ivanka's investing in female entrepreneurs.
0: Let's just talk about that element quickly for a moment. You know, uh, obviously, gender issues have played quite highly in the Trump yeah. uh, thing, partly because of Trump's own things that he said about women. But also, I think it's partly how the Democrats view gender issues as well, because mm-hmm. they take it up quite seriously. And
1: there are far more female Democratic candidates.
0: Yeah, you know, I was about to say it's like a big issue in uh, in the Democratic thing. So, so where where does that leave people like Ivanka and Melania uh, in that milieu?
1: So Ivanka, uh, off the record, has complained about how she has lost some, some friends in New York uh, since her father became president. Um, I mean, I think that the reality is that female. Female voters, and we saw this actually in the 2018 midterm congressional elections, female suburban voters were voting for Democrats by a margin of 19 percent. This is significant because many people remember that white women actually voted for Trump in higher numbers than they did for Hillary Clinton. So we're seeing this reversal where white suburban women in America are really frustrated with Trump. They're frustrated with his rhetoric. They're frustrated with the ongoing allegations met, made against him by women. Um, and so this is this is hurting uh, Trump, and I think it's hurting Melania and Ivanka by extension because they are seen as representatives um, of his administration, either as first lady or as a senior advisor to the president.
0: I mean, Melania, has she warmed up to her role? Because at the beginning, she looked very happy. Deeply unhappy. in pain. Yeah, like um, it just wasn't quite what was on her agenda for the year. Uh,
1: it's, it's funny. I have a colleague who went to Slovenia after the election and interviewed all these people who knew Melania when. Um, and I think part of it is like Melania doesn't come across as a particularly warm person, but it's not unique to the office that she holds now. Um, so, yes, she isn't necessarily as beloved. Um, but I think, you know, she's picked up a couple of her own initiatives. She's trying to stop uh, cyberbullying in particular. Obviously, Barron, I think is 11 or 12 now so she's got a young son who I suspect probably uses social media in some capacity if Secret Service can't keep him off of it Um, and she's concerned with that culture so you know she has her causes um but I would say she's not someone who you see smile as much as, say, Ivanka, who comes across, I think, with a much warmer disposition.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, looks like we're going to have to leave it there for the show. Yeah, for Frederick, thank you very much for coming in and helping to explain America uh, to us, uh, the listeners. We do appreciate it. Thank you also to Craig, who's pushing all the big red buttons, uh, Mandy, who is pr- doing the production, and Vusi, who helps us on the sound. And thank you, listeners, for... Coming and listening and joining in today We had a good discussion And uh, listen up next week We're going to have a fascinating discussion With some interesting people from Weetso, uh And we're uh, going to be talking about disability running All sorts of great stuff So keep listening And we'll see you then